Father, we thank you that you are with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us by your spirit. We're going to talk today about Pentecost and how, Holy Spirit, you came to help us. You came to uh, guide us and teach us and, and lead us. You came to evangelize the world as well as we'll be talking about this. And so we confess our need. We need you every hour. And so, Lord, I pray that today, that by your spirit, that you will help us to understand this all-important, um, not just concept, but, Lord, who you are in your spirit uh, to help us to do your will. And so we we'll give you thanks, praise, give us understanding, help us to apply what we've learned today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pentecost is indeed our focus for today. At the beginning of corporate worship, we saw a kid's version about what happened. 120 disciples of Jesus had an unforgettable experience. The rushing wind, the appearance of fire on each head, words in languages that Jesus' disciples never spoke before came out of them and declaring the wonderful works of God, declaring them to all the Jews who came together from all over the Roman Empire for the Feast of Shavuot of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, hence the name Pentecost, for the name Pentecost means 50. The disciples, speaking in other tongues, were accused of being drunk. But Peter stood up, preached his first sermon in the power of the Holy Spirit. He set the record straight and proclaimed to the people who Jesus is and about his death and his resurrection. Many understood that they were not right with God, and they cried out, what should we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ. And they would receive the Holy Spirit. And so on that day, 3,000 souls were reconciled to the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning king. They became part of what Luke described as the church. And in the days that followed, the Holy Spirit gave the followers of King Jesus power to perform miracles, to proclaim his kingdom. You know, the book of Acts is a fascinating account of the first few decades of Christ's kingdom made visible. Church historians tell us that by the end of the first century, approximately 10% of the entire Roman Empire was made up of followers of the Lord Jesus, reconciled to him as king of kings and lord of lords. Imagine the entire culture that gave themselves over to many, many small g gods began to change in the culture. And by the time the calendars were turned from A.D. 99 to A.D. 100, multiplied thousands, if not millions, of people declared and lived out the truth that Jesus is king. No pagan God will do. And from that day on to this day, the kingdom of Christ would be in increasing measure be made visible from one end of the earth to the other. Now, we have to admit, there was something amazing that went on during that particular feast of Pentecost. But what made this Pentecost feast so special? See, if we've read the Old Testament carefully, we know that God commanded his people to observe this feast every year from way back in the day all the way up to their present day. But this Pentecost was unusual. Why all things supernatural this time? Well, it was all because of Jesus. Fifty days before this Feast of Pentecost happened, 
came the most important, most horrific event ever known. Jesus, promised Messiah, was God's lamb who took away the sin of the world by the death on the cross. He was God's complete, absolute satisfaction to pay for every sin of every person who ever lived. And three days later, Jesus overcame death. He walked out of that grave alive. Death could no longer hold him. Hallelujah. And after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his men. And as Luke said, teaching them about the kingdom of God. The same kind of teaching about the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed from the earliest days of his ministry. His very first recorded words about the kingdom were these. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He also said this, I must preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. But now, this idea of the kingdom of God was not original with Jesus. He didn't start this. See, Jesus had a holy habit, didn't he? He only did what the Father showed him. He only spoke what the Father told him to speak. And when Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he referred to that which the prophets had already proclaimed. In this case, it was Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And here's what the prophet said. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news, gospel, of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, it was not original with him. But what changed everything was Jesus' declaration was that he was and is king of God's kingdom. He's Lord of all, over all. And his victory over death gave him an inheritance, a heritage. Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us what this heritage, what this inheritance is. And the father asked the son, invites him to say this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 110 verses one and two carries basically the same idea. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. It was at some point during the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension that he met with his men in Galilee. Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. And what a fitting backdrop for the resurrected king to speak to his 11 apostles the words to this effect. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I'll paraphrase this a little bit. My father gave me, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth. And because he did, I command you to make disciples of all nations. I'm telling you to influence people all over the world to follow me unashamed. I want everybody to learn my ways and be obedient to me. Now, I know this is going to be an impossible task for you to do on your own, so I'm going to be with you always 
even to the farthest ends of the earth. Now, it would seem as though the Lord promised that he would physically be with his disciples forever because it's an impossible task. Not so. See, this is what the Lord Jesus told them right before he went to the cross in John 14, 16 through 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And right before he went back to heaven, the Lord said this to his apostles in Acts 1.8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this prophecy, the prediction that the Holy Spirit would come upon them was the backstory for this special supernatural Pentecost that Luke recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2. And as amazing as Jesus sending the Holy Spirit to his people was and is, what is even more amazing is what he said about himself and the task he gave his people to do. The giving of the Holy Spirit indeed was the focus of Acts chapter 2. And we marvel at the miracles, don't we? The profound effect that the Holy Spirit had on mortal people, on humans, and even what he did to Jesus. Because it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. But the Spirit of God given was not the primary focus of Pentecost. It was a focus, but not the primary focus. The primary focus of Pentecost was God's awesome power to make visible the statement that the Lord Jesus told his disciples when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, when Jesus said all authority, he was not speaking hyperbolically. He was not just exaggerating for emphasis. No, he said all authority was given to him. He is Lord over all. He is Lord of all. And ultimately, he rules and he reigns right now. Amen? In the ultimate sense, there is only one kingdom, and he is Lord over it. Hear the words that John heard loud and clear in his vision in the book of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Now we might think that since Christ now rules and reigns over his kingdom, why is there so much evil in the world? Doesn't King Jesus care? Is he able to do something about our broken world? These indeed are legit questions. We think about everything that's been going on in the world nowadays, and we want to know some answers, don't we? But scripture tells us the answers. And Pentecost power is right at the heart of it all. So let me set the scene and then tell how Pentecost power comes into play. See, the big idea is reconciliation. Now, this simply means those who were at odds with one another are now in a good, right relationship again. It's a common experience for all of us who are or were married. Husband and wife 
have a misunderstanding. Ever experienced that? And the experience of this misunderstanding turns south. Things begin to spin out of control. Backs turn toward one another. The cold shoulder. Meals are eaten in silence. Now, I know no one understands this, right? Until Jack finally decides he's had enough of this. And so, with a deep breath, he turns to his wife, Jill, and he begins to confess his sin. And then, in tears, Jill's heart is warmed, and she decides that they would kiss and make up. And so they became reconciled. Now, Scripture tells us that Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father is the doorway to the complete reconciliation of all things. Isn't it amazing? In due time, known only to him, all effects of sin will be done away with the creation. Imagine what life will be like with no decay on this planet. No natural disasters. And Paul tells us that the entire creation groans over its bondage to corruption and longs to obtain the freedom that is ours as reconciled sons and daughters of God. And when it comes to rebellious spiritual beings, because we know that there are those, right? They exist. There are many of them. Oftentimes they're called demons or whatever. But spiritual beings, they're living in rebellion against the Lord. The Father seated the Lord Jesus Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all of these entities, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only this age, but also in the one to come. And they too, in due time, will be completely subdued under the feet of Jesus. And at the judgment, all rebellious spiritual beings will be cast into the lake, burning with fire and brimstone, as John describes things. See, that place was prepared for them, wasn't it? So allow me to reiterate the truth. Jesus said, the Father gave me absolute authority in heaven and on earth. His resurrection guarantees all things will eventually be taken care of in due time. And creation will be reconciled to him. Principalities and powers will be subdued. But there's one category of creation that I've left out until now. And that is this. It's us. The category that we're going to talk about now, it's us. Human beings. And that is where Pentecost power comes in. The dignity that the Lord has given all of us is amazing. It really is amazing. As God's imagers, we have the freedom to enter into or reject, walk away from relationships of all kinds. And even more astounding is that every one of us has the freedom to resist the Lord or to be reconciled to him. Every one of us has this freedom. He's given that to us. That's the dignity he's given to us. Now, of course, our freedom is limited, isn't it? We can't do just anything that we want to do. Some things are physically impossible. For example, we cannot disobey the law of gravity, can we? Try getting on the roof and jumping off. Or if we decided to look into the sun for any length of time, what would happen to our eyesight? And likewise, when it comes to the resurrected Christ who rules and reigns over us and how he treats us, 
I've grown fond of saying three things as of late that are true about every person. First, the Lord did not ask us if we wanted to be born. We had no choice in the matter. All of us who are sitting here today, breathing, that's a testament to God's sovereign authority in your life and mine. Second, the Lord will not consult us about the day or the manner of our death. He will not ask us how we want to leave this world to go to the other side. He's just not going to do that. Rare indeed is anybody whom he will inform about the day of their death. Get prepared because today is going to be the day you're going to die. He doesn't do that. Now, again, this is one measure of the Lord's sovereign reign over us. And even if someone decides to take his or her life, we can still say that God is sovereign. Isn't that right? And third, he did not ask us if we wanted to be under his rule and under his authority. That's something we don't have a choice in. He is ruling over us right now. All things are his because King Jesus is Lord over all. That means over us as well. Ultimately, we are in his kingdom. And though we have no choice of whether the Lord reigns over us, we do have a choice as to whether to get with his program. And what's his program? To get reconciled to him and have life or to live in rebellion against his universal reign and suffer eternal death. A few minutes ago, I raised a question of evil. Why evil in the world if Jesus is king over the earth? How is it that profound evil still exists? And what can be done about the evil in this world, if anything? Well, the answer, once again, is found in Pentecost power. And it goes like this. Though Jesus is ruling and reigning over his kingdom, there are countless pockets of resistance against his authority. And many of these pockets are seemingly impossible to subdue. We think about, for example, the Islamic kingdom. Oh, there's a lot of things going on in there. We think about the Marxism that seems to blanket the earth even right now. That seems to be impossible for even Jesus to overcome. But the Lord is capable of doing anything. Isn't that true? He can wipe out evil right now, can't he? He's capable of doing that. Think the flood. How much evil remained immediately after those 40 days and 40 nights? Think Tower of Babel. Remember that story? The entire world was living in rebellion against God, and they were building a religious monument. And God says, no, no. And what did he do? He confused their speech. That was nothing for God. And so that evil was stopped in its tracks. But what did the death of Christ accomplish, though? in relation to evil. He paid for all sin, for all time, for every person. But there's something else he accomplished as well. And I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, to see this. This is an amazing thing, a victory that the Lord did when he was on the cross. His death accomplished this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You know, the writer to the Hebrews talks about how, how Jesus is better, better than angels, better than the priests, better than everything. Since, therefore, the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. My friends, did you catch it? When Jesus died, not only did he pay for all sin, and he said, paid in full, his cry to Telestide was also a cry of absolute victory. It's fully accomplished as in complete victory over the one who has the power of death. Death is now dead, and Jesus proved it by rising from the dead. And Jesus told his disciples, because I live, you will live also. And that's why we don't fear death as followers of Christ, isn't it true? We don't fear death in the way that the world is petrified by it. Now, are we a little bit nervous about approaching death? Sure, sure. But we have every confidence that when it comes our turn to pass on from this life, that we know that we are going to have a place on the other side at the feet of Jesus, bowing before him, worshiping him, adoring him forever. Isn't that a great thing? Isn't that a great hope that we have? So since Christ's death killed death, since Christ paid for all sin, since Christ rules and reigns over all, then what's left? to attack, and to subdue all pockets of resistance in his kingdom. And this is where Pentecost power comes in. And this is where you and I, as followers of Christ, come in. See, when the Lord Jesus gave what we call the Great Commission, he was not about forming people into religious groups so they could live pleasant lives. Did you know that? His desire was not that his people retreat from the world in its ways, lest they become inconvenienced or offended and be exposed to evil. Jesus did not come to establish a new religion to give people more options on their spiritual menu to take and leave as they choose. That's not what Jesus was all about at all, ever. See, Jesus' aim in giving us the Great Commission was and is to wage spiritual war. Jesus said, the Father has given me all authority in heaven and on earth. And contrary to just about everybody's belief, God tolerates no rivals. Even the nice Jesus, everybody thinks he is. All pockets of resistance against his authority will be subdued under his feet. It's just a matter of time. And that's where we come in. See, when when images of God get reconciled with King Jesus, pockets of resistance against his authority in his kingdom shrinks that much more. See, when we engage in the work of proclaiming the gospel, we are engaging the enemy. And the enemy is desperate. Now, I'm talking about the human person in front of us. This person is an enemy. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. We don't destroy our enemies because Jesus says we are to love our enemies. And this person in front of us is an enemy. And I'll explain this. See, this person instinctively knows that the turf he occupies is not his own. Every imager of God instinctively knows that he or she is not free to do anything he or she wants to do. He must borrow the next breath he breathes. She must rely upon the Lord for her next heartbeat. Every person knows this instinctively, 
regardless of how the evolution lie is force-fed down the throats of every person. How do we know this? Because Paul tells us that all a person has to do is to look around at the creation and even look at himself. We all know that we are not cosmic accidents. Everybody knows that we are not products of primordial ooze. We have worth and value. Everybody knows this. Given to us by our creator. See, if we believe God's word, this is the conclusion we must come to. How do we know this? Romans 1, 19 and 21 says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Clearly perceived by whom? By people. Everybody. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. When every person stands before the Lord on that day, they cannot say, Lord, I didn't know that you made me. Every person knows this. So when we as followers of Jesus engage in proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom, some will experience pushback. See, not everyone, though, will experience pushback. But at some point, at some time, everyone will push back because they know that they have to submit themselves to the king. And they don't want to do this. For example, when we give the gospel to others and they give their lives to the king just like this, what do we do? We rejoice, don't we? We rejoice greatly in this. If we reap a spiritual harvest, it's only because others have worked to help the other person to plow up the hard ground or to plant the spiritual seeds or to water them. But God gives the growth, doesn't he? And when one person experiences reaping the harvest, and we call that leading someone to Christ. We're basically the last link in the chain, aren't we? And we can rejoice. Not because we're anything great. Not because, hey, look how good I am. I could lead somebody to Christ. No, we marvel because of the work that God has done in this person's life. We're not anyone special. But we get to experience the greatness of what God has done. See, Jesus spoke of this process when he talked to his disciples in Samaria. Remember this? He gave a, a woman at the well a witness. And he said to his disciples who came back and said, Lord, I've got lunch for you. And Jesus says, i got food to eat that you don't know anything about. And he said this in John 4.35. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps, reaps and receives wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. And so here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. It's a team effort. We all work together as workers in the Lord's field. So proclaiming the gospel of the king means by definition there will be pushback in some form with some part of the body of Christ while this evangelism is going on. See, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit, though, doesn't it, to not only open the hearts and minds of the person who needs to be reconciled to the king. It also takes the power of the Holy Spirit to keep the Christian encouraged and motivated to continue sharing the gospel, knowing that so many live in rejection of the Lord's kingship. There's a second thing we must realize as we proclaim the gospel of the king. 
That is, the Holy Spirit has already gone before us. He's already at work in the life of every person that we will encounter. That is in part measure why he sent the Holy Spirit, why the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit to us. Because without him, no one would be reconciled to the king. Isn't that true? Here's what the Lord Jesus said about the Spirit's evangelistic ministry. Now I want us to turn to John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11, to see this. Again, this is in the upper room that when Jesus had his last meal with his men. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. He was talking about the Holy Spirit, his ministry, what he was going to do and how Jesus was going to send him. So John 16, verses 7 to 11. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now think about this. The disciples are just distraught because they know their, their Lord is leaving. But he says, it's to your advantage that I do. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world. He will do this concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. What is that? That's a sin of unbelief. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. That's righteousness by faith. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. People can escape the wrath of God when they get reconciled to the king. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of every person. He's already blazed a trail for us. So evangelism should be easy, right? So why don't we do it? <laughs> so let's review now, just, just to make sure that we understand. Jesus said, the Father has given me all authority in heaven and on earth. Mark this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I want everybody in the world to follow me unashamed with a Christian identity. This is called baptism. I want everybody to live in obedience to my ways, to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Go everywhere, even to the end of the earth, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you. Go do it. Now then, everything we've been talking about at this point can be summed up in two words. The first word is warrior. Warrior. See, we recognize that the pockets of resistance to the authority of the king need to be handled in such a way as to engage them on the field of spiritual battle. Every time we encounter someone who doesn't know the Lord, we encounter them on the field of spiritual battle. There is no getting around this. It does not matter what shape we think that we are in or if we're qualified or not qualified. It doesn't matter. We are in the battle. Every person that we see that's in resistance to the authority of the king, we're in a battle with them. The one we are engaged with is an imager of God living in rebellion and is a pocket of resistance to the authority of the king. So as holy soldiers, we engage the battle with the three weapons that the Lord has given us. What are those three weapons? It's the word of God. It is prayer. It is our holy lifestyle. Our holy lifestyle. These three things are essential to break up a pocket of resistance in the kingdom of Jesus. There's a second word. Ambassador. Ambassador. So what is an ambassador? I really like how one 
author puts it. He says, an ambassador is one who is an authorized person to represent the government and the people who sent him to a foreign land. More than simply the deliverer of a message, the ambassador is authorized to act on behalf of the sender. In other words, the ambassador is the face of the government that sends said ambassador. Her words carry the full weight of the one that she represents. His lifestyle speaks volumes. The ambassador enters the territory of the foreigner, sets up shop, represents one's government, and always being aware that he or she is being evaluated by the foreign entity. That's the ambassador. And we are ambassadors for Christ, are we not? See, it's the same way with the foreigners, the resistors in the land of King Jesus. We are the human face, as it were, of the king, and what we do matters. How we act carries a lot of weight. And by the same token, we also speak for God to the resistors. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. If you want to turn there, great, or follow the manuscript, it's fine, or just listen. Here's what Paul said about our responsibility as ambassadors. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, as followers of Jesus, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we as our ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to us or through us, we implore you now, all your resistors to the authority of the Lord, be reconciled to God for our sake. Christ made him, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Now you tell me, who can represent the king well? Only those who know the Lord. Only those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Only those who have a strong desire to see those living in rebellion against the king to get reconciled to him. See, we know this takes time for us to get to know the Lord in a relationship, to, to discover and to really get on our heart what's on his heart. And Pentecost power is key. See, truly, if it wasn't for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian, we would have no power or desire to represent the king. Isn't that true? We live in ourselves, in of ourselves, in rebellion. So thank God for the Holy Spirit. So as I land this plane, loaded with a whole lot of scripture, a whole lot of truth, we talked much about the Holy Spirit today. Obviously, this is Pentecost. We talked much about his ministry in our lives, his convicting power in the lives of those resisting the authority of King Jesus. So let me give us three takeaways today. First, let me debunk forever the myth contained in these words, in this sentiment, You've heard it before. It's that simply this. We must always share Christ. If necessary, what? Use words. Use words. That's a myth. Now, I get the sentiment. 
I'm sure you do too, our actions are important, but only because they lend credence to our words. In in order to communicate to others about the king, we must do what? Open our mouths and speak. We must tell them about him, trusting that the Holy Spirit is already working. The story is told of a Christian who, although he loved Jesus, he was kind of shy about telling others. Anybody resonate? He needed to go out of town to attend a conference. So he hopped on a plane. Now, this is before COVID, way before COVID. And he had a six-hour flight. And he was assigned in the middle seat next to a guy who was mild-mannered. The thought came to him to tell this man about Jesus. He resisted the prompting. And so he decided to compromise. Lord, you know, I'm not too good about this, so I'm just going to compromise. When the meal comes, I'm going to bow my head and pray over the meal. And that's going to give this person next to me a witness about you. Right, Lord? Well, the meal was served. The Christian man prayed over it. He ate his meal. And later in the flight, the mild-mannered man bowed his head. He seemed that he was praying and pretty fervent in his prayer. And after a while, the mild-mannered man stopped his prayer. The Christian got the courage then to open the conversation. Hey, he's praying. I'm praying. Maybe you know we can have a little conversation. And he said to this man, I noticed that you're praying. Are you a Christian? And the mild-mannered man said, absolutely not. And shocked, the Christian said, well, then why did you pray? And then the man said, you know, when you said your prayers are over your meal, I assumed that you were religious. I'm a Satanist. And I prayed to Satan that he would put a curse on you and people like you. See, this man mistook an action. But the moral of the story is obvious, isn't it? Just because we do righteous or even religious things does not necessarily mean that we will get across the witness that we want to get to other people. No, we must speak. We must take the risk to tell others about him, and the power of the Holy Spirit will enable us to do this. Second takeaway has to do with the reality that there are those in our world who are just waiting to get reconciled with the king. Spiritual seeds have been planted in this person's life. The watering has been done. The plowing has happened. And now all that's needed is for someone to come along and reap the harvest. I'll never forget it. Way back, way, way back, 1981. Where were you in 1981? I was at a missions conference called Urbana. And I was one of over over 14,000 people who that year heard many missionaries and many speakers. And one missionary speaker, her name was Marilyn Laszlo. She told stories of her work as a linguist. She went to those places where there is no written language. She had to take what she heard, write it down, reduce it to written language. Her eventual goal was to actually make a Bible translate into their language. It's a pretty tall order. One of the stories she told was when she was with a certain group of people way out in the jungle. And she spent years there trying to do her work. But then... Other people caught wind that she was there. And she was so busy with the one group, she couldn't break free. But finally, she decided that she would do one day. She would go to another tribe and just visit them. 
And so the, the leader of the, of the village showed Marilyn around. And Marilyn noticed that there were houses on stilts, and they had ladders to climb up into their houses. But she noticed there was one building that was right in the middle of the village. It was flat on the ground. And she didn't know what that was. And so she asked the guy, and she said, what is this? Well, the leader goes, this is our church. And Marilyn Lazo goes, a church? Isn't this great? How did your church come here? Where's the missionary? Did the missionary come and tell you about Jesus? The tribal leader says, no, no one, no missionary came and told us about Jesus. Well, then, then do you have a pastor to tell you about Jesus? No, we don't have a pastor. What's the church for? And then the leader said, we're waiting for someone to tell us about Jesus. Though Marilyn didn't say how, obviously the Lord communicated to them and that someone would come and tell them. And Marilyn finished her message with these words. And they're still waiting. The lesson is clear. Who are those around you that have yet to hear about the king? That not only you and I are submissive to, but he is ruling over them as well. They're just waiting. Perhaps they're those, just like the people in the village. They're just waiting for someone to come and tell them, will you do this? See, we don't know, do we? But we need to ask, don't we? You know, Jesus. How we need to pray and trust the Holy Spirit to give us the words and the boldness to do so. And the third thing I want to say is, I bring this message to a close. We need to remind ourselves of what a witness is. You know, in Bible fellowship, I get amazed how often things that, that we bring up in the Bible fellowship, we talk about here in the service. And today we talk about what being a witness is. See, King Jesus told us that we will receive power when it comes, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be his witnesses, and we will go everywhere and let others know about him. So what's a witness? Simply put, a witness is one who tells what he or she has seen and heard. That's it. It's a witness. In other words, the witness is called to tell their story of their experience. A witness concerning Jesus is someone who tells their experience with King Jesus. Every one of us who have been reconciled with him has a story. Don't we? What's your story? See, this is what the king has called us to share. He didn't call us to be theologians. He didn't call us to be lawyers. He called us to be witnesses about what he has done in your life and mine. Don't worry whether your story is exciting or dull. Just tell it. Because it's not about you anyway, is it? It's about what the king has done in and with and to you and me. And so in your bulletin, there is a worksheet. It says, tell your story. It's pretty easy to fill out. If you've never done this before, let me encourage you. Three parts in your story. You tell what your life was like before you met Jesus. And you don't have to give gory details or anything like that, but just in a general, what your life is like before you met Jesus. And then the second part of your story is, you know, how you came to know Jesus, how you met him. You know, and give specifics. 
Because if there's anything that you want this person to know as they walk away with from you is how they can come to know the Lord as well. And then third is, what has your life been like since you've met Jesus? And that's your story, that we, you, are called to go by the Lord to go tell others. And then, after you write your story, practice. Practice with others. Literally go to someone and say, hey, listen, I have got something I would like to tell you. I want to, I want to tell you a story about the most important thing that's ever happened to me. Can I tell you? What do you think people will do? More than likely, they'll say, sure, sure. And then if you're too nervous, guess what you do? Pull out your paper and read it to them. That's all you have to do is read it to them. And so let me ask us two questions to ponder as we wrap up the message today. And the first is this. What is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? Second, in light of that, what would be the best thing that you can do for someone else? And though I dearly love my family, and though I dearly love you guys, far and away the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is being Jesus. And for me, the best thing I can do for someone else is to tell them that they can meet Jesus too. Because King Jesus loved me. He gave himself for me. The one who is high and holy, I have the privilege of walking with him now and forever. What about you? Let's pray. Our God and Father, you indeed are the most excellent, mighty, powerful, all-knowing, good, gracious, merciful, kind God. Salvation, reconciliation is what you desire. It's not your desire that anybody perish, but that all come to repentance, all come to be reconciled to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you hung on the cross and you hung on the cross for us and all of our sin was placed upon you, you also declared absolute victory over the enemy. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. And now, Lord, as your holy soldiers, we want to go and to encounter the enemy. Lord, every person who is a resistor to your authority is an enemy. And Lord, we want to encounter our enemy in a way that you tell us we need to encounter him or her, this precious soul that you desire so much to reckon, have be reconciled to yourself. Lord, we want to pray. We want to present your word to this person. We want to have a holy life and live that holy life before that person so that they can see that, that you, God, alone are good and they can become reconciled to you. Lord, these are marching orders because, Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are over all. You are above all. And you will have your way and your will done when it's all said and done. So we thank you for these things. We love you. We praise you. Help us, Lord, to love you more and to serve you better because you have loved us first. So, Lord, now I pray as we turn our attention to our giving, also to our singing, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to do these things because we want to give you worship.
And we thank you, Lord. We ask that you'll receive them. In your name we pray.